On July 11, 2021, the same day that Hot Sauce scorched whiskey to win a trilogy, the UFC celebrated five years of endeavour. The company, then known as WME IMG, were revealed as Zufa's successors in the wake of UFC 200 in 2016, with the $4 billion sale officially closing that August. For the financial world, it was historic, setting the record for the most lucrative takeover in sports at the time. But for MMA fans, it marked the end of an era, which began in earnest 20 years prior. The story of the original UFC sale is well documented. In January 2001, following a tip from friend Dana White, Las Vegas casino magnates Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta purchased a struggling promotion for just $2 million from SEG. Still, even with Zufa and the incomparable DFW at the helm, the company would continue to flounder, reportedly burning through $40 million of cash in the subsequent years. They would eventually turn the ship around, however, thanks to expanded state sanctioning, the emergence of box office stars like Tito Ortiz, and the success of The Ultimate Fighter and television more broadly. And this, incidentally, all happened in the space of about five years, the same amount of time that Endeavour has had the company reigns. So what have they done with the UFC? I'm Rob from MMA On Point and let's dive in. So there are two somewhat interlinked sections I want to tackle. One, Endeavor's impact on the UFC internally, i.e. what Endeavor has brought to the business behind the scenes. And two, Endeavor's impact on the UFC externally, or specifically how or if the product we experience has changed. And for this, I'll be digging into the data. So let's start with the first one, the impact on the UFC internally. To understand Endeavor's strategy, you must also understand the terms of the acquisition, which explicitly banked on profit growth. Now, if this was the big short, I'd cut to Margot Robbie to explain, but alas, it's not, so let me try. So, to complete their purchase, Endeavor needed to borrow $1.8 billion, an amount out of their reach from a regulatory point of view. This all came down to EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. It's basically net income, and it's commonly used to quantify profitability. But crucially, it's also used by financial regulators to prevent excessive borrowing in leveraged buyouts, i.e. using borrowed money to help fund an acquisition like Endeavour did with the UFC. In short, regulators say that a loan to target EBITDA ratio in excess of six times shouldn't really be approved. Therefore, given the 1.8 billion required on the UFC's reported 170 million EBITDA, Endeavour's loan far exceeded the guidelines. So to get around this, lofty projections were used to show a future UFC EBITDA of 300 million, giving them that six times ratio. And this is what got the deal over the line, despite a warning from the Federal Reserve. Endeavour acquired a controlling share of the promotion, while their partners, including Silver Lake and MSD Capital, nabbed the minority stakes. The rest of the shares went to Endeavour's celebrity clients, Flash Entertainment, which kept the 10% they had owned since 2010, the Fertitta brothers, who retained a small passive stake, and Dana White, who stayed on as president, selling a portion of his 9% stake for 9% of future profits. Not everybody would stick around, however. In a bid to meet their projections, Endeavour had to cut costs, and in October of 2016, just months after the sale, 15% of the UFC staff were laid off. An investor document then confirmed that while cuts would also come elsewhere, including to the Ultimate Fighter's future budget, employee compensation was indeed the biggest area of saving, with the 55.4 million payroll being slashed by half. This ultimately meant pink slips for the likes of global brand officer Gary 
Cook, Chief Content Officer Marshall Zelaznik, and UFC Canada Chief Tom Wright, who was laid off along with 80% of his staff. Other important players would leave too, including legendary matchmaker Joe Silva, who retired, Brazil Chief Giovanni Decker, and Dave Schaller, notable defensive lineman and VP of Public Relations, who took a job with the Philadelphia 76ers. Wrong sport, Dave. Wrong sport. The most publicised layoffs though were that of UFC legends Mahews and Chuck Liddell, who under Zufa were given jobs to retire. While many, including Chael Sonnen, believed their roles to be largely ceremonial, a lot of fans were outraged. Dana, for his part, lamented that while they were his guys, these sorts of cuts were unfortunately normal in a takeover, and as cold as that might sound, it's true, particularly here given their massive debt. Cost-cutting, however, was just one step of Endeavor's strategy to maximise profits, with step two aiming to grow the UFC's revenue. And we could talk all day about the various big-money sponsorships they signed to achieve that, including with DraftKings and Crypto.com, which, at $175 million, is the largest in UFC history. But nothing compares to the ESPN rights deal, which saw the Disney-owned company cough up $300 million a year, almost tripling the UFC's current agreement with Fox. UFC pay-per-views would then later move exclusively to ESPN, plus, given the promotion guaranteed returns. Returns that meant they would earn revenue equal to approximately half a million buys per event, regardless of what it sold. All they had to do was produce a set number of shows. Now that's not to say that Zufa couldn't have brokered something comparable. I mean, they would have had Endeavor's CEO Ariel Emanuel on their side regardless since he was their agent. However, according to UFC COO Lawrence Epstein, the new owner's strategic thinking, resources, connections and relationships were absolutely key in this instance. And given Given that the deal was only signed after meeting directly with Disney CEO Bob Iger, the latter two gains had to have played a big part. They also incidentally played a big part in the UFC finally debuting in Russia and China, two markets they've forever struggled to crack. Within just months of Endeavour taking over, they had secured a meeting with Russia's then Minister of Sport, Vitaly Muko, leading to the UFC's first show in Moscow two years later. The longer term play here, however, was the unveiling of UFC Russia, an initiative that would see M1 Global help the promotion navigate the local market while operating a farming system. Longtime fans who know the history between the two promotions understand why this was significant. In 2009, the UFC attempted to sign Fedor Emelianenko, a client of Vadim Finkelstein, M1's majority owner. The negotiations would quickly fall apart though, with reports calling the UFC's refusal to co-promote a quote, major obstacle. Moreover, their dealings were anything but cordial. Valentina Matvienko, M1's main financier, apparently laughed in Dana's face over his offer, while he would later claim that M1 blew a quote, incredible deal christening Vadim Finkelstein Vadummy. Now fast forward a decade later and they're kind of co-promoting, which highlights a company willing to operate in a different way. Finkelstein even referenced this, saying that the UFC changed its global expansion strategy when Endeavour took over. He said that under Zufa they were trying to become monopolists by buying up competitors like M1, but now they're willing to work with promotions where it's mutually beneficial. And while the monopoly discussion is another video altogether, from a talent identity perspective, the initiative has been an undoubted success, with the likes of Movsar Ivolev and Shavkat Rachmanov already making the jump to the UFC. Then there's China, which has arguably been an even bigger headache 
Pre-2017, they had only managed to hold events in Macau. The potential upside to entering mainland China, though, was massive. Chinese firms knew this too, with China Media Capital leading the pack to acquire the UFC for a time. Endeavour, for their part, had a solid foothold in the country as well, having established a regional division in 2016, which helped the UFC bring its first event to mainland China in 2017. Plans were then put into motion to build a $13 million UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai, just the second of its kind with the other location in Las Vegas. Opened in 2019, the facility has been used to host the UFC Academy Combine, a program designed to identify and develop Chinese talent. A more hands-on approach to their business with M1 in Russia, but not a far cry. It has even been used in partnership with the Chinese Olympic Committee to prepare athletes for the 2020 Summer Games, further strengthening the UFC's relationships in the nation. The same can be said for many of their local agreements too, including a strategic partnership with Weibo, China's leading social media platform, and a landmark rights doubling deal with streaming platform Migu. Anyway, to date, the UFC have now held three events in Russia and China respectively, with Russia being the third most popular destination outside the US in 2019. Plus, who knows how big that number would have grown if the world hadn't shut down in 2020, resigning cards to Las Vegas and Fight Island. Speaking of Fight Island, Endeavour's connections were instrumental in that happening too. After the US shutdown, Khaldun al-Mubarak, an advisor to de facto UAE leader Mohammed bin Zayed and friend of Ari Emanuel, suggested to Ari that the UFC set up shop in Abu Dhabi. What's more is that they would pay for everything too. Private planes, food, housing, testing, facilities and medical staff. It even paid the UFC a hosting fee, reportedly at the rates that compensated for the absence of ticket sales. And that's despite Dana bemoaning the cost of it all. Let me tell you about Fight Island, okay? Fight Island is so fucking expensive and so fucking crazy that, you know, and, and almost impossible to pull off. I mean, when you're talking about planes and flying people in from other things and the restrictions for, for um, uh, you know, you have to quarantine people and all these things that we're going through. It's fucking insane to be even trying to do this. Moreover, there's also a chance that the Las Vegas shows had endeavoured to tank too. While the Apex may have been a Zufa idea, I can't find evidence either way. When you consider the timeline, there's a good chance that Endeavour commissioned that facility as well. Besides, those ESPN guarantees are only good if it gets its fight, so you can bet that Emmanuel and Co would have moved mountains to ensure they produced them. Now, that's not to say that the transition has been seamless. While Ari was quite familiar with the business, as mentioned, he was the UFC's agent for years. He and his team weren't immune to blunders as evidenced by their dealings with Conor McGregor. By the end of 2016, they hadn't even taken the time to meet him, at least not to talk business. And that's despite him having produced two massive pay-per-views, UFC 202, which pulled a record-breaking 1.6 million buys, and UFC 205, the first Madison Square Garden show. This subsequently led to a standoff with McGregor demanding equity before securing a boxing license to fight Floyd Mayweather in 2017. And one would have to wonder if May Mac would have even happened under Zufa because, in hindsight, it seemed like Endeavour's way to placate McGregor and make a quick book that they very much needed. The 2017 athlete retreat appeared to be a bit of a misstep too. It was an event intended to allow the new owners connect with the roster, but the reviews were mixed. Katzengano would even admit that the lavish affair, which celebrated the UFC's success, felt insulting given that most of its already underpaid attendees hadn't reaped the rewards. The sentiment would also boil over at a Reebok talk when Cajun Johnson confronted a brand rep about how the deal was hurting the fighters. 
But hey, at least I got that sweet 50% off coupon. With that said, Endeavor has been reportedly pretty hands-off when it comes to the UFC's day-to-day operations. I mean, Ari hasn't even bothered learning his champion's names. Because of the fight, even though our uh, Chinese champion lost, Li Na. Jokes aside, despite the teething pains, my read is that while the company might be lacking that family feel, for most fighters, it's probably much the same, which could be a good or bad thing depending on the context. Like Zufa, there's little chance that their successors stray far from the 20-ish percent of company revenue they pay to fighters. They've also continued Zufa's outfitting policy, recently switching from Reebok to Venom with much the same benefits. But who knows if this will all change once the ongoing class action antitrust lawsuit is decided. Either way, the sale, Endeavor buying out their partners to take full control of the UFC, and the subsequent group IPO has only heightened the awareness of the organization's labour issues. Never have we had access to so much UFC financial data, and given what we've discussed, it's not surprising that it all points to its revenue being astronomical. Some 95% of Endeavour's own sports segment, 50% of its consolidated EBITDA, and only growing having produced their biggest first half of the year ever in 2021. And that incidentally brings us to the question, has the product changed as a result? Well, a frequent criticism since the sale is that the meritocracy to the extent that it existed, has been upended in favour of money fights. But what does the data show? Looking at the ranking differential might help us here, i.e. the difference in ranking between fighters in a given bout. If there has been a surge in matchmaking disregarding merit, we should see an indication of that. But as you can see, on average, fights are still well matched, even more so since the acquisition in fact. But here's the thing, if a fighter was unranked, meaning they're outside the top 15, I assign them number 16 for consistency. This means matched unranked fighters will always have a differential of zero. So how does it look for only ranked fighters? Well, we still get a similar result, although perhaps one not as dramatic as before. In conclusion, you could say that the UFC's old adage of the best fight the best remains true. Whether that's entirely by design, though, is another story. My guess is that the trend is in some part thanks to fighters being increasingly less likely to compete down in rankings. The bookmakers' odds nevertheless follow suit, illustrating that bouts are becoming increasingly more competitive, with the average odds differential converted here to probability trending in the same direction. Again, there could be many reasons for this, including rankings being a factor in lion setting and traders becoming sharper over time. But what about digging down to championship fights only? interim titles excluded. Well, the data tracking ranking differential shows us a very different story, with the UFC appearing more willing to pit title holders against fringe contenders. It isn't dramatic, but it's certainly trending north. Pre-acquisition, the average differential between champion and contender was approximately 3.5 with a standard deviation of 3.7 versus 4.1 with a standard deviation of 4.5 post-acquisition. And that makes sense, not only is the average up, but so is the variation as illustrated by the increase in these large spikes. We can go even deeper than that though. If we assume that every contest with a differential of 4 or less is okay, we're left with 9 instances before the sale and 18 after. This translates to 8. 4% of total fights pre-acquisition and 21.4% post. In simpler terms, that means that before Endeavour, just 8.4% of the UFC's title fights featured a contender ranked 5 or more places below the champion. By contrast, a whopping 21.4% fall into that category since the sale. But what about the context? Looking at pre-Endeavour instances, only one sticks out as primarily financially driven to me, and that was Chael Sonnen's 2013 title challenge against John Jones. The rest had valid reasons. 
Post-acquisition is a bit of a different story, however. Of the 18 instances, these can be disregarded outright for extenuating circumstances. That leaves us with 11 bouts of which 6 were financial plays in my estimation. Michael Bisping versus a number 13 ranked Dan Henderson, an attempt to capitalise on a popular rivalry. Eddie Alvarez versus an unranked Conor McGregor, a fight that the UFC admittedly made their bed with under Zufa. Bisping versus an unranked George St. Pierre, which was for most a step too far despite GSP's dominance at welterweight. Henry Cejudo versus an unranked TJ Dillashaw, who, like McGregor at featherweight, hadn't done nearly enough at 135 pounds to warrant a crack at the flyweight strap. Cejudo again, this time versus an unranked Dominic Cruz, who was coming off a four-year layoff and had lost his title in his last fight. And Jan Bohovic versus an unranked Israel Adesanya, which is somewhat reminiscent of McGregor and TJ. As for the others, I'm personally fine with them, although your mileage may vary. It should be noted, however, that the UFC had promoted money fights before the rankings were introduced, but flicking back into the history books would nevertheless yield similar results. As a percentage of total championship fights, we get significantly more fringe or unranked contenders these days, even when contextualised. Despite this, the odds differential trend nevertheless mirrors that of all fights, and incidentally the ones I identified as bad were relatively competitive as far as the bookmakers are concerned. This is also true relative to all title fights regardless of rank and differential. Anyway, another criticism routinely levelled at the matchmaking under Endeavour's watch is the excessive use of interim titles. However, to be fair to the new owners, this trend has been growing for a while. Between 2003 and 2011, only four interim titles had been created, while six were introduced between 2012 and before the UFC sale closed in 2016. But again, just like with the title contenders, there's an argument that the interim titles utilised under Endeavour have been more flagrant. I nevertheless think this is largely a response to the growing schedule. In his paper, Moving the Needle in MMA, Paul Gift found that the marketing of title fights appears to add value to a fight card, and as John Nash highlighted in his video, why the UFC is a monopoly, or a monopsony, the UFC knows this. Just look at the number of pay-per-views without a title fight headlining. Therefore, with a dramatic increase in events and the financial need for championship fights, it's not surprising that the UFC go to the well with interim titles, and it makes me wonder if Dana will finally acquiesce to that £165 division. A more sinister reason for the surge in interim titles could be the emergence of Hunter Campbell who has reportedly handled contracts since the sale. According to Ariel Helwani, when negotiating with champions, threatening to strip or introducing an interim title has been Campbell's MO, with the most recent example coming this year with Francis Ngannou. And finally, roster management is another area often scrutinised, although only one instance interests me, and it's Demetrius Johnson's trade to one championship. You might say that Yal Romero's release was surprising and I'd agree, but it was comparable to the likes of John Fitch and Jake Shields getting the axe in 2013 and 2014 respectively. Johnson, however, was something different. Sure, he had lost his flyweight title, but it was extremely controversial. Moreover, with a record for the most title defences in UFC history, he was still considered one of the greatest fighters on the planet arguably ever. So trading him for Ben Askren was an explicit admission that the UFC valued a potential star over a proven great, at least in this scenario. And I'm not so sure that that would have happened under Zufa, but I could be wrong. And well, that's the thing, isn't it? Nobody knows what the promotion would look like if the Fertitas had carried on. In the meantime, don't expect money fights and interim titles to disappear. And while it would be wrong to say that they're a consequence of the Endeavour era, they are unquestionably a bigger feature, but maybe one's always destined to grow, sale or not. Still, I guess when it comes to Endeavour's performance, this, the matchmaking, 
will be the variable fans ultimately appraise. If you're unconditionally adverse to money fights, then perhaps they haven't cut it. As for me, I think they've performed okay here. Even if I too prefer a more rigid approach where champions defend against the next best thing, always. I simply believe that the rise in revenue before merit matchmaking was inevitable and for my taste, it hasn't got out of hand. Well, at least not yet. I nevertheless think that it's elsewhere that Endeavour has truly excelled. While their purchase should be considered an investment and thus a move to enrich themselves forced, not nurture the sport, their strategies should do both, especially through territorial expansion. I mean, if you're impressed with the Russian and Chinese fighters of today, wait until tomorrow. The athletes that will emerge will, for my money, raise the bar and isn't that ultimately what we want? And I genuinely believe that we have Endeavour to thank for that. Zufa saved the UFC and made MMA relevant, so fans who have been watching the sport for as long as I have will always have a soft spot for them. However, with the 2016 legalization of MMA in New York, which seemed like an end game of sorts for Zufa, my sense is that the UFC needed something different to jump to the next level, a change of battery. And I think Endeavour has been just that. A big shout out to the hardcore casual Lawton Verkant for editing this video. You can follow him at Lawton underscore Verkant on Twitter. Make sure you like the video and subscribe to the channel. I will be back for more of these deep dives into some of MMA's more fascinating and oftentimes bizarre stories. But until then, you can follow me on Twitter at the Robert Pallon.